In this episode, we're answering some of your questions. We'll be covering the challenges in trying to do strata due diligence when you have a property selling within days of being listed, what to do when your strata manager won't respond to you, at what point should investors consider selling due to land tax, why East Coasters turn their nose down when it comes to Perth property, and our thoughts on modular and kit homes. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and buyer's agent mentor, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, author of Auction Ready and co-host of Your First Home Buyer Guide. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker, recently ranked number five in Australia out of over 18,000 brokers in the annual MPA Top 100 Mortgage Broker Awards. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of an appropriate and experienced professional. All right, our first question is from Angela. And she says, I saw a property that had a Saturday and Thursday inspection scheduled Vendor's agent had a strata report available for 300 bucks. They said that it was that price because it was a lot more substantial than the $30 before you bid reports. Because of demand, they scheduled another viewing for Tuesday, so the second day for inspection. By that afternoon, the property had sold for $715,000. It ticked boxes, except that it was 55 square metres. How was anyone supposed to do any due diligence? Your only option was to rely on the strata report organised by the vendor. What are your thoughts there, Chris? It sounds like so, so the second day inspection that afternoon is on the Tuesday um, and they saw the property on the Saturday. Um, so I don't know, how long was the list on the Wednesday before that? Like, so was it online viewing for six days? Did anyone organize a private viewing? Did someone see it on the Friday or the Thursday? But even still, it was on the market for a good, you now potentially six days. Like a lot of that due diligence potentially could have been done in that fast property sell a lot faster yep. that potentially on... Um, you could have seen offers on the Saturday. So I think in this scenario, um, potentially there was time, but it didn't feel like there was much time just because of how fast it moved. Um, and unfortunately, this is how fast you potentially do have to move. Now, if it sold on the Saturday, I think you're right. I think if that was the first viewing and it sold that afternoon, did someone really look at the strata report? Did they really do their due diligence? Probably not, but that doesn't mean that they did. Um, and, you know, because unfortunately this is one of the challenges we're buying is that some people will overlook due diligence because they are just trying to get the deal done. Um, and unfortunately that's just potentially not going to give you enough time to do your due diligence. That doesn't mean you should not do it yourself. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, it's it, fortunately good properties can move this fast and this even potentially took two viewings, not just one. Yeah. And it, look, it is interesting because I, I read this and I think, well, there's a number of sort of, you've got to break down the question, right? Um, the line about the report being more substantial from the agent saying, this one's $300 because it's more substantial than another one that might cost you 30 it, that just sounds like a line. It, it's actually yeah. potentially crap because at the end of the day, um, you know, wherever you get the report from, if it's been provided by the vendor beforehand, you know, the before you bid model, I mean, if you've listened to that episode, you'll know that there's various cost mo- cost structures um, for those reports. So it's not like you get a $30 report because somebody spent five minutes uh, looking through the, the yeah. strata documents. It's because they're selling lots of reports. And in fact, they'll, they'll usually charge the successful purchaser a success fee on top of that as well. So that's just sounds like an yeah. agent that's just spinning it. So you f- sort of pass that aside. The reality is that strata reports are difficult 
for a number of reasons. And one is because it does take time to get one. You've got to get access to the strata records. The person has to book an appointment, go in there, read through them all, put together a report and send it to you. And sometimes that can take a week. So if you're going to get your own, um, you know, you need to have that time available to you. So if a property is going to turn around within a couple of open houses and there is a vendor's report available, you are reliant on that vendor's report. But also the reality is that there's such wide variety in the record keeping of strata managers and also the ability of somebody to write a report. So there's a, there's a wide variance. You could get your own report. It wouldn't necessarily be any better or worse than the vendor's one. So unless you actually know what a good report should contain, how to read it, how to look at the gaps in that information that is in that report and to be able to assess whether or not it's something that you can rely upon to purchase that property or not, then you know, just getting it yourself isn't necessarily the solution. And so this is one of the problems that a lot of people think, I've just got to get my own strata report because that's going to be better. Mm, maybe, maybe not. You need to learn what should be in that, what, what information is you're looking at. And that is something that even as buyers agents has taken years to learn because it's actually really difficult to learn how to do that. I've certainly in my business, my business is now 15 years old, and in the early days, I went around looking for people who could teach us what was in a strata report and what to look at. Took forever to learn that stuff. So that therein lies a, a real problem. So you might get a strata report. You don't know whether it's a good one or a bad one. You might get a lawyer to look at it, but are you using a lawyer or conveyancer that does a lot of purchases of strata property? If you are, then they might be really good in terms of being able to look at that report and advising you on it. But if they're not, they may not. And some refuse to look at the strata report. They say, no, that's not our area of expertise. So you're sort of thinking, okay, well, I got one. That must be a good thing. You know, some people don't do any due diligence, as Chris mentioned. They give up because they think, well, if the only way I'm going to buy a property is to turn things around super quick, I'm just going to have to hope. Hope is not a strategy. Um, so there's lots of reasons why a property can sell quickly and there's lots of flaws in the due diligence process done, executed by most people because basically most people have no idea what to look for. So um, that's not a very comforting answer to that question though, is it? Yeah, but I think your point around having a conveyance slash solicitor that will look at the strata report for you uh, might ch- cost you a few hundred dollars, but you know, having that upfront, so having your conveyancer and making sure that they will do it for you, um, because basically ones that do look at lots of them, you know, can go through and see if there's any major issues and, and can basically stop you making a big mistake. So I'd absolutely mm-hmm. make sure that have that person in your team ready to go, um, have a commitment that they're going to turn it around in a reasonable time frame for you. Um, and potentially you've got to get ahead of it. So if you see a listing come on that could be a property, you know, it looks great, ticks all your boxes, ticks your price point. Um, then potentially you you think it's going to turn around fast and maybe you just order the strata report. Maybe you get it checked prior to even going doing the viewing. You know, a lot yep. of apartments, you could probably get that feel that it's going to be a likely a good contender rather than you go to the Saturday, oh, I love it, just like you thought you would. You ask for the strata report to be checked. Doesn't come back till Monday afternoon. By then other offers are on the table. You're chasing your tail. So whereas you could go to the Saturday open and then maybe you're really just thinking about, well, what's the price that I think is fair for this? What are I really willing to pay rather than, hey, I've got to get the strata report. Um, 
And uh, I would say that might be something you just want to consider if stock's moving fast is you have to do that due diligence prior to even seeing it. That's absolutely right because there are buyers on agents' databases and buyers' agents too. We certainly get access to properties often before their first open house or at least we know about them and we know enough about uh, you know the areas in which we buy that we we also know good buildings and we think okay if it checks out in, on the inside then we know we're going to go for this property because we know a lot of yeah. you know a lot of other um, information about the the property itself the the building and also the location and so yes we have done that we have preloaded if you like our due diligence and then going through the property is almost like just the final rubber stamp it's like yes it is as good as we thought it might be and we've done everything we've done all our checks. And some buyers who've been in the market for long enough, and also some buyers agents, will have actually gone in and they're ahead of the eight ball already. Yeah. You know, so so therefore that is one way that people actually look like they turned around something really quickly, but actually they didn't. They took their time and did it properly. And the thing too is, if there's a whole Monday available, as Chris said, if you have a lawyer or conveyancer who is a specialist in strata, and that is absolutely something that we encourage you to find somebody who does a lot of conveyancing in that space, in the strata space, then, and you've got them already lined up. That's exactly what, you know, in Home Buyer Academy, which is a, our course for first home buyers, you know, that's step one, getting your support crew. It's getting everyone lined up so that the minute you see the right property, you actually know exactly where you're going to go to get that advice. And that includes a broker as well while you're at it. You know, all of those people that you need for advice in order to make that final decision and go for a property you can have all that set up and ready to go. So that that's really how you turn around a property and you get everything done and you don't take shortcuts when time is of the essence and when and properties are moving quickly. Yeah, I mean, a prime example, clients try to buy a property in a postcode that's got a bit of a higher risk rating at the moment. Um, and, you know, they've already fallen in love with the property and um, it's actually a good asset within that postcode. The banks have put restrictions on their LVR in terms of what they'll lend on that postcode. So it's kind of like a needle in the in the haystack and that's probably discounted into its price already. But, you know, we could have potentially, if they came to us last week and said, we're really going to go look at this property on Saturday. And, you know, we could have had these conversations with them around the issues around LBRs. We could have checked on the postcode and said, actually, this could be a bit of a waste of time. Um, and so, yeah, definitely try to do your DJ if it's a likely property that's going to suit. Um, buyers agents, absolutely. If they're looking for a great house on a great street and they've been looking for months and months and months and, they get a sniff of something off market that's going to tick their box and they're going to get free free access or early access to that, um, then they've usually got the building and pest happening an hour later, right? Um, yeah. And the contract's already getting checked and they've already requested that and offers are on the table, you know, that same day. And so you can still do those strategies yourself if you're buying. So what's our next question, Veronica? This one's from Stanley. My question, if not already raised before, is around land tax. You know, one of my personal bugbears, but anyway, at what point should investors consider selling an investment in Sydney and spread this around the country? I have an investment in Sydney, I won't say the suburb, which I pay 30K on one dwelling. That's a big land tax bill. The capital growth does ease the pain and land tax is deductible, which also helps. The New South Wales government takes approximately half my rent, that's presumably in land tax, and has no responsibility over the property. I could rant all day, or so could I. I'm definitely not after financial advice, just a discussion around this annoying tax, so I don't feel alone in paying this every year as it increases. I would also like to spread the narrative that seems to be lost with renters regarding this tax. Most people, not investors, unless they haven't met the threshold, aren't even aware or even understand how this tax works. And secondly, the media narrative is around 
unfair landlords raising rents without addressing the true costs of being an investor. Keep up the great work. Love the show. All right, Chris, can you briefly uh, explain how land tax works? So it's a state-based tax and it's not based on the value of the property. It's based on the, the value of the land that that property is attributed to it. And it's usually a conservative valuation, to be honest. I, you know, you get those valuations. You go, you know, way in the world I would have sold that land for that price. And so that's, that's a good thing, right? Because, you know, if a property is worth, say, $3 million and the land's worth $2 million, but you're not going to be paying land tax on the value of, of land worth $2 million. It might be one point five. It might be $1.2 million. They're usually massively conservative. And so... In, and then you, what you, you get is a threshold amount of land that you're allowed to own as an individual um, and per property in different states, it's based on properties, not based on um, like the entity, um, based on, not on the total accumulation of your land. So you've got to be careful because it, and it changes different states, charge different taxes, but generally you get a threshold. So you're allowed a certain amount of land before you um, start paying tax and your house isn't included in your land tax, right? So it's one of the benefits of owning a home is you don't pay any tax on the growth of that land. Um, and so you don't pay any land tax and it is deductible, which is a big, um, thing because if land tax wasn't deductible, that would absolutely wipe out a lot of people because it basically be 40 or 50% more. Um, we wouldn't get that deduction. So in New South Wales, I think he said it was Concord, didn't he? Is that right? Yeah. Um, he did, but I wasn't going to say it, but it doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. Sorry. (laughs) Um, apologies. Um, I mean, the paying 30K of land tax, I mean, that might be the land value might be worth $3 million, um, in this scenario. I've just done a quick calculate on that. If, is that right? But it also could be that he's got another property that tips him over the threshold and then this is the sort of the bigger True. value one, you know? That's so a good point. It's, yeah. Yeah. So, so it that depends might on how good. much property you've got in any one jurisdiction. Yeah, exactly. And so roughly it's about a million dollars you're allowed um, before you start paying land tax in, in sort of uh, New South Wales, a little bit over than that. Um, and you can sort of go online and look at the percentages that you'll be charged on top of that. Look, I think in this scenario is that um, he's paying, he's probably got some significant capital gains in this scenario. And while I think it's an expensive tax, I do think that that's not going to go away. And um, I think there is going to be a pressure on uh, investors owning land and try, this is what the housing affordability bill will be on. Um, I think it's going to force investors to try to sell homes, to get them off the rental market for housing affordability, um, get them to buy more apartments and things like that, which is better for the rental stock. So, uh, while it's not a great tax, you can see why it also suits maybe the broader picture to have that tax there. Uh, and it's an easy win to tag, take money off investors. So should you sell it? It's really a how much capital gains tax are you going to basically pay by selling this? If you've owned this for a long time and it's always been an investment property, you never lived in it, and you've got a 500k tax bill, um, and you uh, then you might go, well, I don't really want to lose $500,000 out of my state. So if I sell my property for three mil, I have to pay 500 grand tax. I've only got 2.5 left over plus what I had in the mortgage. You know, maybe I've only got a million or 1.5 cash. Maybe I can't borrow um, much at the moment because borrowing capacity is really tight. And so you've got to be really careful selling because you might not be able to get as much leverage as you have now today. And then you have to pay this big tax bill. So if the only cost is really potentially paying this land tax to hold and it's a good asset and you think it's a really good asset long term, then I'd be really hesitant selling it for land tax reasons because you could pay a huge capital gains tax bill and you might not be able to get anywhere near as good asset in the marketplace. Um, 
And it sounds like it probably would be positively geared as well. Um, because generally these sort of bigger properties are because you've owned them for a long time. A lot of people don't buy them in recent years. They bought them a long time ago. I agree that, um, land tax are not very well understood and I'll, uh, you know, we don't have a Dumbo in the uh, Q&A episodes, but I'll, I'll give you one. It's my own personal Dumbo for many, many years ago. And so I had uh, my own principal place of residence and I also had bought uh, a, a house as an investment. And then I chose to move out of my principal place of residence into um, my partner at the time. And so I rented out my principal place of residence. And so I had the six-year rule there to rent it out until I purchased another principal place of residence. And I, my accountant didn't mention anything about land tax liability. I was only thinking about, you know, um, tax via the ATO because land tax is not via the ATO, it's via your state government, right? So about three years in, I get this letter from the state government, Office of Fair, uh, what do you call it, the um, Office of State Revenue, with a rather sizable land tax bill because it accumulated over three years plus a penalty and for both properties as well, um, because obviously one of them was over the threshold and the other one was also. And um, and I was incensed and I rang them and I, don't you realise I've got a six-year rule? And they uh. went, well, don't you realise this is a state government, not the ATO? And I went, what do you mean? Went to my accountant. Can't believe you didn't tell me about this. I'm only worried about your tax return. It's not something that I have to worry about. You know, like anyway, sacks the accountant for starters. The state government, uh, Office of uh, State Revenue, took pity on me because I must have given a good enough sob story. So they took off the penalty, which was very kind of them, yep. but I still had to pay the land tax. And um, and that was a very big lesson learned, you know, because I'd bought that investment property, the house, without even knowing. And I was a sales agent at the time, so I was not a buyer's agent back then. I was a sales agent. I had no idea. I'm in real estate. That's my my chosen career, my chosen profession. I had no idea. And so if I can be in the game and not know about land tax, you know, it's a zero surprise to me that a lot of investors have no idea and could equally get caught out when they get hit with their first bill. Um, one thing I would just, you know, further to uh, Stanley's comments on tenants and, and the, the bad rap that investors get, you know, tenants don't actually care. They don't care about the costs that the landlord has to bear. You know, no. <laughs> it, it, regardless of whether it's fair or otherwise, they do not care. They just don't want their rent to go up. And I didn't either when I was a tenant, so I totally get it, right? But I am still astounded that the narrative around investors is remains so negative, even with such a rental shortage, that no one seems to be able to draw that bow or, you know, to, uh, to join the dots to go, oh, if there's less investors around, those greedy people supposedly that are that are taking my rent, less investors mean less investment properties, therefore pushing up rents. I mean, it's just astounds me that that sort of those two uh, concepts can't seem to coexist in a lot of people's minds. I think land tax does suck because you pay it regardless of the income that you derive from the property. And also, while the capital gains do make it seem worthwhile, um, there are some years that don't see price rises and the price falls don't automatically roll out into lower land taxes and, and rates because the rates are uh, calculated from the same, the unimproved, land, um, unimproved property value, un the land value. And interestingly enough, I just got my land tax bill yesterday and I looked at it and I looked at the actual land value fell last year, according to um, the Office yep. of State Revenue. 
but the year before that it was higher. Mm. And you go, well, actually, that's interesting because last year prices rose, but the year before that they fell. So it, it appears to be no correlation with what's happening in terms of the market and what they determine the land value to be. I think um, talking about spreading the land tax uh risk across different jurisdictions or different straight states is a very good thing to think about before you buy, definitely not after. And there are a lot of considerations before selling an investment property that Chris was talking about before, particularly the tax considerations and thinking, you know, and not and really I would never encourage anybody to sell based on one cost alone. You really do need to think of a number of issues and I'll I'll just quickly whip through some here. And I do have a little masterclass that I'll put the link in the show notes to as well, which actually takes you through a framework to work out whether you should, in fact, sell an investment property or not. You've got to be looking at market conditions, um, where you're at in the cycle and why periods of price growth are rarely one-off, right? You've got to look at what your plan was when you bought the property versus your plans now. Are you on or off track and how do you measure performance? What's the caliber of the asset? How good is it? And is it worth keeping and how do you work that out is important. Um, and what will you do with the money if you sell? And have you considered those tax implications that, that uh, Chris was talking about there? And then do you have the right advisors? Do you have an accountant, financial planner, conveyance, a property advisor? Do you have those people on board to make sure you're looking at this holistically? And then lastly, you need to time that sale. You need to understand yeah. the listing process, how long it takes to get on the market, what you do with tenants, you know, how you give them notice, whether you should sell with them, et cetera, et cetera. And then how do you choose the right sales agent? So there's quite a number of things to go through, steps to go through before deciding to sell an investment property. Definitely our advice would be not to do to do it just because you don't like paying land tax. Yeah, I like that last one as well there where you, you try to time your sales. So in this situation, you might say, look, it just doesn't really make sense for me to hold this because of the land tax, because I'm not, you know, I could do something better with the money. I could pay off my home. I could put more money into my super, I could buy a cheaper investment property, I could restructure things, right? So they may make that decision, but it doesn't mean you go and put the property on the market now. You may say, look, I want to sell it maybe in two years' time, it's a bit where maybe I've retired, or maybe there's more momentum in the market, or you know, or maybe when there's, you know, less listings or a bit more stronger. So you kind of have to, you know, don't just rush to your decision there. I think ultimately though, if you think about it, this is just another reason why it's going to be harder and harder to rent a house in the more affluent areas of capital yep. cities because, you know, they're the ones who are generally going to have the biggest land tax bills attached to it because, you know, it's got to be a million dollars of land. I mean, while we're there, <laughs> Veronica, with that land tax bill, was that still very conservative, the land value they used on those properties? Well, com- compared to this particular house that I'm thinking of where I saw that the land value go in the opposite direction of what the market yeah. did, the you know, if I look at what it would cost to build the current or to replace the house, it's not conservative at all. Um, yeah. But it, at, the, at the same time, that house is underutilised. Like I could get a much bigger pro- house on that block of land. So therefore, you know, it's sort of, um, it's not, it's not highest and best use, put it that way. So yeah, yeah it's, it's hard to break that down. And this is a lot of people think, oh, well, the, the property's value is basically the unimproved land value plus whatever it costs to build something on top of it, it doesn't actually work that way. So when you actually look at it, I would say the land component is, is uh, according to the Office of uh, State Revenue, is higher than 
when you broke it down to the dwelling and the land, if that makes sense. Yeah, I see what you're saying, but it probably, you're probably not sure if you'd still sell it for that. If you had to, you know, the house burned down, whether you would sell the land for that amount. I don't know. Because mm-hmm. if it was really uh, felt high, then there's also um, state revenue be getting lots of complaints. Oh my God, you can't, but how that land's not worth anywhere near that amount. And it would just create a whole nightmare for them. So, you know, generally speaking, you probably want to undercook that to stop all those complaints <laughs> and just get people to start paying this tax, which they've already got issues trying to get the money back anyway. Um, so, yeah, but I think ultimately what this is, it's disincentive to own land um, and uh, more expensive land in our capital cities. And so what that means is that every year investors are thinking about this. So you're one of those investors who's mm. got a house in the capital city that's going, am I better off to sell this? And what's that's good is is what they try to do is get you out of an investment property into say free it up for the home buyer market. Um, and so what that means if you then take that and say, well, I'm going to sell this house. Well, that's one less house for rent in the inner ring of Sydney or in that suburb, um, and that won't be bought by another investor because of things like land tax. Um, yeah. And so it'll go to a home buyer. So now it's actually harder to rent a house in that suburb. And this is what will consistently play out over the next decade, for example, where every time an investor is looking at the numbers and go, look, I don't really want to sell it, but I don't want to pay land tax anymore. And I've got to sell it Mm. at some point. And maybe it's a good time to sell it now. The market's really hot. I'm in my seventies or eighties. Let's just get rid of it. And I think you're going to find in a decade, it's just going to be ridiculously hard to rent a house in the more affluent parts of our capital cities. I'm on a personal mission to help more people make better property decisions. And you can find out all about what I'm working on at veronicamorgan.com.au. And there you'll find resources for first home buyers, details about my buyer's agent mentoring program, access to suburb help for investors, or if you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or lower north shore, you can connect with my team at Good Deeds Property Buyers. If you're thinking about buying your first home, upgrading to a new one, or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, we would love to carefully guide you through this journey and importantly, get the finance right. Please reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Don't forget that you can download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au. Just on that, and we all know there's, that we've got this chronic rental shortage, and, and of course, apartments you could buy say a house is worth one and a half million and you you had the choice between a house and an apartment one and a half million your land tax liability on that apartment is going to be a hell of a lot less than it is on the house because of course there's less land attributed to the apartment so if as investors you can see that you know if you can find a grade apartments there's a lot to be said for buying them versus houses because you don't have that additional uh, land tax liability, and typically you normally get a, a better rental yield on an apartment, uh, all things being equal as well. That said, so this particular house has just come up for rent, and uh, I, it needs a new kitchen and bathroom. It's livable, but it you know really needs it, and I worked out whether now's the time to do that or not and decided it wasn't. And interestingly right. enough, the property manager advertised it for a midweek inspection. So it's a two-bedroom cottage with a very dated kitchen and bathroom and parking. And they had nearly 90 groups pre-register for a midweek 15-minute wow, inspection. Nearly half of those turned up, so sliver over 40 groups 
turned up in 15 minutes. Like I don't envy a property manager at the minute either. I definitely don't envy tenants or prospective tenants. 18 applications, uh, three of which were in excess of the advertised rent. It's just mind-boggling. And, and I do absolutely feel for tenants. It's an absolute nightmare out there for tenants. But yeah, that's you talk about not many houses on the market for rent and you talk about landlord bashing, then, you know, it looks like greedy landlord, sure. But the reality is I also, this is the first time that I've actually managed to exceed my rent that I was getting for the property that uh, back in 2016. It dipped because the market dipped and then it dipped because of COVID and it's only now that I actually am now back more than, but it's the first time it's been able to exceed what it was back in 2016. So there's no talk about that. There's no talk about, you know, what what landlords did in COVID for tenants. Uh, so, you know, I'm in agreement with Stanley on that one. All right, next question. Tristan, nice short one. I'd like to hear your thoughts on pre-built and modular buildings homes. Are they cost-effective versus building via traditional methods? I think the first thing let's talk about is finance. <laughs> Finance is sort of the the key in all this, which is why you probably want to talk about it first. Um, yeah. But they make a lot of sense from a practicality point of view, from a build point of view. You know, you can build in a warehouse. The No matter what the weather's doing, you can build. You can build more efficiently. Um, you can use a lot more machinery. You transport it on site, put it together in hours like an Ikea. But, you know, and you can get some very expensive and some beautiful designs and, you know, they make a lot of sense. And, you know, we had Archie Blocks on the podcast many years ago um, when they were still in business. Um, and uh, I've tracked them and they've got better and better, to be honest. Uh, the You know, like anything, they innovate, they get better, they get more efficient, the price points get cheaper and things like that. The problem is banks don't like them because banks can't control um, the, that if something goes wrong and the building company goes under and some have in this area... Um, and they, uh, you want to do a construction of a house on a piece of land, but you want to do a modular home. Well, the builder's not going to want to build the whole house and then say, hey, don't worry, mate, I'll build it all. I'll put it on the land, then pay me after, right? <laughs> after I've connected it up because it's too much risk for the builder. The builder wants to get stage money across the build um, and uh, to protect themselves, right? And they need to pay their staff and their things like that. So the builder wants the money as they build, but the bank doesn't want to pay it until the build's finished, connected up and ready to go. And so there's until this Until it's left the factory. We're <laughs> even on site, connected. You know, a bank doesn't want to have to sell an asset that's got a, you know, half built, you know, yeah, sort of kit home on it, right? Um, mm. It's not all connected and things like that. So this is where this, I, years ago, I was trying to get finance for Archie Blocks, actually, to be the, the broker for it. And I went around and knocked at all the banks. And I don't think banks have even change their policy on this it's too much of a small thing on their list of you know driving credit growth that's going to drive um more credit growth it's just not a priority and so that would be that if it changed if banks said um particularly with partnerships with some modular builders and said right we will lend 80 percent on the end construction value um and we'll back you that changes the game and these these uh, modular build companies would have more work than they could handle um, sure. because they make a lot of sense um, doing renovations. But if you're cashed up, you don't need a bank. That's different. That's their buyer. Cashed up downsizers, you know, people buying, um, doing builds with cash. Modular homes can make a lot of sense um, and can lower a lot of risk on builds because 
you you've kind of built off site. You're not kind of building mm-hmm. with the the natural. Not like doing a renovation and having to, you know, adjust it. You know, and a lot of those things take a lot of time and cost a lot of money. So modular homes can sort of just be built in a factory, put on a truck, and then dropped off, and it can be done in that that wastage is not there. I mean, you do see them, you know, in sort of country blocks as well, where you, or on, on acreage where you've got more space. Yeah, because, for sure. I mean, let's face it, not all sites are suitable either, and they've got to have access for the big trucks to deliver, you know, the big bits to all go together and we'll crane access or whatever it is that they need in order to get access. So I think that's something as well. But yeah, I I, I sort of pour over some of these these sites, particularly with the the weekenders and things like that, and think, oh, these, you know, some of them look really architecturally very interesting. But some look like sheds. In fact, some are sheds. So I've actually seen some modular uh, build companies that are quite literally, and they don't even try to pretend that they're not. They're like sheds turned into something that looks like a like a house. Which is, I'm not quite sure what the what the uh, the regulations are of different council areas because that's that's something that needs to be taken into consideration as well. And also, you need to think about your future market. But always think about your future buyer. Always. And if it's uh, in an area where, you know, that modular home of whichever type you, you're going for, the more art- architectural style or perhaps the, the um, remodeled shed, you know, if that's acceptable and desirable in that marketplace, then great. And yeah, sure, you might be doing it to live in for 20 years. Sure, you might think you're never going to sell it. But I think that's always, that's your exit strategy. That's your get out of jail free card always is to think, if something should happen to me, if my life changes, if I need to, if I want to, will I find a buyer who is prepared to pay more than I pay for it? And that's fundamentally a good question everyone should ask before buying anything. Yeah, I think you're right. There is the um, kind of the granny flat modular type, you know, like a, a shed that is like more of an Ikea house. And, you know, yeah, that might save you some money over doing a kit home versus doing something architectural. But and you go and sell it one day, people will value it like it's a, and particularly it would age fast and, um, you know, wouldn't, you know, stand up to the element as well as, yeah. you know, some other places, Cost right? fortune so, to cool. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But if you go look at, and I, Archie Blocks, I think they have, they're still in business or something. So be careful. I don't want to say they weren't in business, but I think they went through some challenges a few years ago. Um, but if you look at places like Modscape, Rebuilt, Ecolive, like these are premium, mm. um, you know, options, um, and they'd be very desirable, even in the most affluent suburbs, if they were done well. Um, yeah. And, uh, you know, it's just whether you're building it on site or whether you're building it in a shed, and um, sometimes building in the shed's more efficient um, and can be built better um, with all the machinery and things like that. So don't discount it, assuming that they're all not great quality, because I think some of these companies have, you know, are, are leading, setting the standards in lots of different things, um, I would mm. say. So. Uh, I just I, agree. I, I would love bank finance to to do this because I do think um yeah anything that can support the construction industry to build great stuff and um to make renovating cheaper and more efficient uh, and the waste that we have um but I think banks just don't want to play ball with this because it's just too risky um and they just don't want they need to take that risk if banks were really struggling with credit growth and yeah they go well, what else way could we lend more money uh, that's just not their challenge right they um well yeah and also if you serious about um, increasing the construction of dwellings, then, you know, the government would get in there and, and finance it because, or find a way to finance it or encourage the banks to finance it or whatever because at the end of the day, we've got a, you know, quite a chronic housing shortage in this country 
and in many ways, modular housing, um, you know, pre-built housing can provide a very, a very plausible solution to getting dwellings up quicker. You know, so there's something our government should be certainly looking at, including in their policy discussions. That's for sure. All right, our Absolutely. next question is from Ruth. Um, I have problems with my strata manager. She is not replying to my emails. I've asked her whether solar panels are covered under strata insurance. I also need to make an insurance claim for bathroom cupboards. She did the claim on my behalf, but no reply after three months. Can I make the claim on my own? Now, I'm going to. F- I went to Amanda Farmer right for this one. <laughs> uh, so she is the host of your Strata Property podcast. So I would encourage anybody who is a Strata owner or considering being a Strata owner to listen to that podcast because she also has a membership um, uh, that you can join where you get access to ask questions of experts. So I think there's obviously Amanda, she's a Strata lawyer, but there's also, um, you know, experienced Strata managers, I do believe, that uh, contribute to that forum. So I've asked Amanda, and this is what she says, but I've also got a few things I think we can add at the end of this. Um, Amanda says the owner can't claim on their own as the policy is in the owner's corporation's name, but they shouldn't be waiting for the OC to make a claim the owner can simply ask the Otis Corporation or the OC to pay them the replacement repair costs they have forked out and how the OC deals with that, uh, that is recovering under its insurance or not, is a matter for them. The owner does need to be careful, however, that the OC is actually responsible for the repair. She said, if I were to dig further, I'd ask, why do the solar panels and bathroom cupboards need repairing, replacing? For the OC to be held responsible, there needs to be some breach of their legal duty. Bathroom cupboards, for example, are not usually something the OC is responsible for on a wear and tear basis. That's and she said that she'd work through that in the members Q and A forum. And the, uh, you know, when members can actually provide more information and ask questions of the experts. And so we'll actually put the link for that in the show notes. Um, but I thought also we could talk about what you do do when you can't get a reply from your strata manager because I had I had a problem a little while back where. My strata manager went completely AWOL and I could not get an answer out of them. <laughs> and I thought, this is ridiculous. I did actually, I think I did actually reach out to Amanda at the time. I'm a member of that group. Um, but, you know, what did I do when I couldn't get reply from my strata manager? I shook the tree. I can tell you I vigorously shook that tree. I found people on the owner's corporation, because I used to be on the owner's corporation some while back, I went through all my old emails and found people, looked at the minutes from the last meeting and found the people and the emails and emailed the people on the committee saying, I can't get hold of the strata manager. I also found as many emails as I could find from from the same company, um, just going trawling through my Gmail, and I started peppering them with who is responsible. (laughs) I finally got a response. And weirdly enough, um, we had a new strata manager who, you know, had been particularly quiet and our owners corporation or our uh, executive committee are quite self-sufficient, so they didn't need to bother this person. But um, it certainly got that person to be a little bit more visible, that's for sure. And I found who it was and got the answer to my question. But it is infuriating. It can happen. Well, I, don't, I have no doubt that you would have got to the end of that, um, <laughs> Veronica, but I think you're right. That's the strategy. You just got to, um, you know, not call, if I'm calling an email is not working, get creative and um, I'm sure you'll find a way for them to to take action. I wish people did get back to people 
you know, sometimes your values um, aren't what other people's values are. Maybe they're just flooded, to be honest. You've got to have a bit of respect here for some of the strata managers that and the amount of buildings and defects and issues and, you know, they're probably putting fires out all over the place and um, it's the fire that's the loudest sometimes that gets put out. So, um, yeah. yeah. And, and, and Amanda Farmer, I mean, I think that's exactly what I was going to say before reading your notes on air is just go speak to a strata lawyer and really understand your rights because, um, yeah, no one's going to know it like she does. Yeah. You know, it's funny though, The I went to the last AGM um, with that new strata manager and it is very interesting. We talk about record keeping and I mentioned earlier when we're looking at strata reports and the record keeping that there's no set um, rules in place for, certainly not in New South Wales, as to how records need to be kept. So you're sort of relying on good business practices, but also good individual uh, record keeping practices. And you know, because I used to be on the committee, and there were questions around. We're doing uh, a bit of um, bit of upgrading works on on the on the uh, the block, and there were questions around sort of historical decisions. And because I had used to be on the committee, I had the I had the memory, and I was able to remember what had happened because the strata manager had no idea why certain decisions had been taken in the past. And it comes back to that record keeping and that handing over of records and. Um, it's very imperfect, let me tell you. Uh, there's a lot of work that could be done in that space. Alrighty, um, last question from Elizabeth. I've been listening to your podcast for more than two years now and Perth was rarely mentioned. Good to see that it is finally the case and she's referring to our episode with Ray Chua, a Perth buyer's agent. She says, I'm a Paris woman who migrated to Perth 18 years ago and watched the city flourish and definitely deserves not to be categorised as a mining town anymore. My question is, how come there is still a mis- misconception from people from over east about what Perth is about, especially when it comes to the property market? What do you reckon? Do you reckon there is a misconception, Chris? Oh, I would say so. Like, I went to um, Perth, kind of trying to remember what it was. It would have been at least eight to ten years ago. And um, you know, cities can change a lot in that time, right? Um, you know, I was going for a wedding in Margaret River, and I thought, well, I actually went for drive around with Ray back then. Um, to show me all the areas. Where do people really want to live? Where's the up and coming areas and things like that? And I think unless you've kind of, you've gone there on holidays and you've gone down the coast or up the coast and things like that. And I don't know, it's, it takes a long time to shake that, but you're right. Cities are growing. Populations are increasing, different jobs, different migration and, and things like that. And so, yeah, I just think people haven't, haven't sort of gone and experienced it in any recent years. And I think it just takes a long time for those perceptions. It's a long way away from the East coast, right? So the flight and the the time difference. Um, and so people aren't holidaying as much as maybe they're going up to Brisbane or the Gold Coast and just as seeing it or, you know, have friends going there and talking about it as much. I think it's maybe just stuck in the, the old perception. But I do think that, you know, there is, you know, there's been a positivity around Perth, but in that episode, you could also see that we're trying to temper that a little bit to say, that doesn't mean that everything's going to go up, you know, that the Perth market is just going to boom and Everything, you know, uh, is going to, ha- you have to be really careful what you buy there. Um, and so, yeah, I think there's almost an overconfidence in Perth now that rather than an underconfidence and a, you know, decade of bad performance. Now, that's a funny thing too, because it is, perception is a funny thing, right? So we're on the East Coast and our perception is that there's a bit too much positivity around the Perth market. There's a lot of very positive noise and coming off the back of a decade of crap performance you know, you got to be you got to be careful, right? Because it's like you know, memories are short, right? Um, 
But also, clearly, because Ray alluded to this too, and then we've got this this uh, question, perhaps on the West Coast, they've got this enduring perception that East Coast people talk down Perth all the time. Maybe they've got a chip in their shelf. I don't know. But that's all about perception. You know, so we're thinking, hang on a minute, everyone's talking Perth up. They're over there thinking, hang on a minute, people are still talking it down. So I'm not quite sure who's right there, but I do think that that, you know, understanding that it really, really, really has delivered very, very poor results for a long time for the majority of people that have held property there, that is something, of, you know, you've got to be very, very careful about. You know, we, Darwin is not on the radar. Well, we're not talking up Darwin. I don't hear anybody talking up Darwin, but Darwin's had a shocker, you know. And so is that going to happen next? That Everyone thinks, oh, well, Darwin's got to have its day. Eventually it's got to revert to the mean too. You know what I mean? It Just because it's had a, a period of poor performance doesn't automatically follow on that it's going to have a period of good performance. And I think that there's a bit of um, positivity around Perth that I'm concerned isn't based on fact. And just because a city's become a little bit more mature um, in terms of lifestyle, you know, is that enough of a fundamental change in terms of the foundations of a market to result in, uh, you know, long-term sustainable growth? And I don't know about that. And maybe it's my East Coast bias. Maybe that's exactly what Elizabeth is referring to here. But it does take a while for perceptions to change. Yeah, and I think, you know, she's moved there from Paris 18 years ago. You know, you want to sort of see people consistently moving there, right? Um, Maybe she was a bit of against the grain back then, but maybe she's seen in the last three to five years that shift, right? A lot of people moving back uh, who, you know, from lots of different countries around the world, Perth, Perth, the city they chose. Maybe they don't just work in mining. They work in lots of different um, employment sort of verticals. Um, Maybe you've got a lot of people moving back to Perth from the east coast because they can't afford what they want and they're getting to the family stage um absolutely that happened so yeah you want to see this sort of you know the city driving its next evolution of growth to be more than just people moving there for work and and mining jobs um and if you're seeing that and you're seeing this real scarcity where people aren't leaving the city um and you know particularly people are going to other cities for more money for example and that uh then that's a really strong element of growth or signs of growth so um, but yeah, you do need it consistently long-term. And so maybe we've seen that in the last few years. Are we consistently going to see that over the next decade? And there's no reason why you, you wouldn't, to be honest. So um, yeah, I think it's, it has taken a long time for that to be the case. Though. I think one closing note on this is fact. The fact is that the largest um, proportion of our population is on the East Coast. Our two biggest cities are on the East Coast and then Brisbane's our third biggest city. And so, therefore, with those three cities combined is basically half the population of Australia, you know, a bit more than half the population of Australia, actually. So, that's a fact. And then you've got this one city on the other side of the country. So, that's always going to make it different and 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 certainly going to um, create some fundamental differences you know, between the two markets as well. And I don't think you can use the same uh, assumptions you might use in East, East Coast capital that you would use for Perth. So I think that when I know that when buyers from one area uh, have decided they're going to put their money in another area, quite often they do make assumptions based on where they're coming from. And I think that is a danger as well. Mm. You've got to understand those local dynamics and work out whether they are sustainable in the long term or not. But uh, we'll try to keep our bias out of any commentary on Perth. 
And I'd say that's one of the things that concerns us around the Perth market, right? Are people who are pushed out of the capital cities like Sydney and Melbourne, are they moving to Perth or are they moving more up the coast to, say, Brisbane, the Gold Coast, Sunshine Coast, you know, or to Central Coast or Wollongong or Mornington Peninsula or, you know, are they even going to Adelaide over Perth because it's, you know, the time difference is a bit better and the flights are a bit easier and things like that, um, which we've seen. So um, Mm. I think that's the... You know, as population grows, is it just people first moving to Australia? Is it people from Perth moving back to Perth? Is that what's going to really drive the economy over the next decade? Um, or is it also that plus people moving from the East Coast? And I would say that's a little bit doubtful, I would say, from what we've seen clients and where people are willing to move to unless they've been, they're from Perth themselves. All righty. Well, thank you all for your questions. We really appreciate them. And uh, we've also had some really interesting suggestions for guests and episode topics we are working on some of those so i just thought i'd let you know that and uh keep them coming keep reaching out to us and letting us know what you'd like to hear about thank you thanks so much if you have a question that you'd like us to answer in an upcoming q a episode you can send us a voicemail or written question via the website theelephantintheroom.com.au or you can email us directly at questions at theelephantintheroom.com.au. If you like what you're hearing, please share this episode with others you feel would benefit. And while you're at it, why not leave us an iTunes review? Five stars would be great. I know that sounds a bit cringy, but we have it on good authority that every review helps make it easier for other people to find out about us and hear what our amazing guests have to say.